You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, I thank you for waking us up, getting us out of bed, um, bringing us to this place to gather with your people and to worship you. I thank you for your kindness and mercy to us in your Son, Jesus Christ, and most of all me, um, a sinner who, is, uh, who stands in the grace and forgiveness of, of your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that you would give me clarity of thought and speech and that your strength would be made perfect in my weakness. And I pray that you would open all of our ears and hearts to hear and receive whatever you have to teach us today. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Okay, so Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, even though Mark was likely the first gospel written, um, and even though Paul's letters were written before the gospel accounts. So why is Matthew first in the order of our New Testament? There's probably several answers to this question, um, but one possibility I want us to consider this morning, and I hope this doesn't scare you. I know that y'all are all smart, but I want us to look at the Greek together. So this is going to be on the first slide. Um, Hopefully you're familiar with the alphabet, um, thanks to fraternities and sororities. Um, But the first two words, which are in bold and italicized, are the words that I want us to see. And I'm going to transliterate um, for you, but you could probably see what the first word, what what does that word remind you of? B-I-B-L, Bible. This is where we get our word, Bible. In Greek, it just means book. So what is this book about? The second word, so you have a gamma, which is G and then a transliteration of the um, epsilon E, and then a new, which is an N. So G-E-N-E-S. What is this? Genesis. Genesis. Thank you. So what Matthew is saying is this is a book of Genesis, a new Genesis, so to speak. This word um, just means genealogy or origins or beginnings in Greek. Um, But what Matthew is doing is he's alluding to the book of Genesis and says, I'm going to tell you about a new beginning. And this beginning is of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Um, By using the word Christ, he is also saying that this Jesus that I'm about to tell you about is the promised one, the Messiah, the anointed one. And he is the son of David, son of Abraham, which means that he is the fulfillment of of the promises or the covenants that God made to David and to Abraham. And I think that these are um, important this morning to consider as we think about the women in the genealogy as we tie up this series. Um, But before we look at those covenants, I included verse 2 for you to see. So Matthew goes ABC, Jesus, David, Abraham. Then beginning in verse 2, he's going to go backwards. He's going to start with Abraham, go all the way to Jesus. And you see this pattern where it says, Abraham gave birth to Isaac. Can a man give birth? No. So that is to be understood as begat or fathered, is how most of our translations say it. So this will be the pattern. So-and-so begat, so-and-so, so on and so forth. Um, But this is the new beginning of not only Israel, but of all humanity that is seen through the birth of Jesus Christ. So in the next slide, I have, um, I'm going to try to run through this very quickly because I want to get to Mary, but we have God's covenant with Abraham that is shared in Genesis 12 and 17. And so what we see here is that God's promise to Abraham is that he will become the father of 
one nation? No, many nations, into many nations, and he will be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. So what God is going to do through Abraham, through this one person, through this one family, is to be a light, a blessing to all peoples of the earth. So he's going to use this family to bring all people to himself. So that is God's covenant with Abraham in less than a minute. (laughs) And then the next slide shows God's covenant with David. This comes from 2 Samuel 7. And just to summarize, that the first part of the covenant is a promise of a son who will build God a house. And this son is Solomon. Um, But the covenant ends with another promise. Your house and kingdom will endure forever and your throne will be established forever. So this is a promise of um, a king to always be on David's throne. Um, But what happens after Solomon dies? His his kingdom is split. And by the time we get to, um, I'm going to next slide, Isaiah and Jeremiah, we're nearing the end of the kingdom of Judah. And um, they are looking forward to the day in which God's promise to David will be fulfilled and there will be a son once more um, on uh, David's throne. And so these texts are just a sampling of the Messianic text, which is a continuation of God's covenant to David. And the promises that we find here is that he will bring justice and righteousness to Israel. And by doing that for Israel, he will bring, you see in Isaiah 42, justice to the nations. And not only is he this a covenant for Israel, but again in uh, verse 6 of chapter 42, he will be a covenant for the people and a light for the nations. So God had promised them a Messiah. And yet after Isaiah and Jeremiah, the people of God have gone through many kingdoms. So they become slaves to Babylonians, slaves to Persians. Then Alexander the Great comes on board. Then it's the generals of Alexander. Then there's like a very short 100-year period of freedom under the Maccabees, only then to become colonized again by the Romans. So by the time we get to Matthew's Gospel, um, when Matthew is proclaiming that this Jesus is the promised Messiah, it's like, finally, the anointed one we've been waiting for a long time. And for sure, for his Jewish audience, um, that first verse would recall to mind God's promises to David and, and um and uh, Abraham. So, if this is true, then what can we determine about the women in the genealogy? And this is just a re- recap of what has already been said. Um, so I'm just trying to summarize as we conclude this series. Um, as I said, the, the pattern is Abraham beget Isaac, Isaac beget Jacob, so on and so forth. There are four interruptions to this pattern, and they come through the four women. Um, In these four instances, it is so-and-so beget so-and-so by, insert name of woman, right? So why does he name Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba? And why does he not include the matriarchs, namely Sarah, Rebecca, and Leah by name? And I think it's tempting to conclude that the women were mentioned because they all were associated with adultery. Um, We have read about that in the text. That was true. Um, whether or not they were rightly or wrongly accused of such sin. Um, Some people may want to say that they are there to communicate that God is gracious to sinners or specifically to adulterers. 
Um, but if Matthew wanted to communicate that God was gracious to sinners, he did not need to include these women. If we had time, we could go through all the men mentioned and list out all of their sins, and you would indeed find adulterers. So in light of the covenantal problem, uh, promises, uh, most New Testament scholars believe that the women are there to um, signal that God's covenant, not only to Israel, but to the nations, is realized in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, I think it's the next slide. Uh, thank you for being my, uh, my clicker, <laughs> my human clicker today. Um, this quote comes from Alan Culpepper, who's a scholar who's written a commentary on Matthew. He says, the explanation that the four women were sinners is not supported by the record. He doesn't mean that they weren't sinners, but that they were listed specifically for their sin um, associated with adultery. So he goes on to say, and it would not advance Matthew's aims to associate Mary with the succession of sinful women. The pattern of irregular unions prepares readers to accept the irregularity of Jesus' birth. More importantly, the inclusion of other peoples in Israel, the people of the covenant, is through the mothers in the genealogy. Matthew shows how non-Israelites were brought into the covenant lineage, anticipating Jesus' role in bringing salvation to both Israel and to the Gentiles. So on the next slide, um, very quickly, so who are these women then? Tamar, we, the text doesn't say if she's an alien. Possibly she was a Canaanite because if you recall, Judah took a Canaanite woman as his wife. And then when he went to take a wife for his oldest son, it is possible that like he took a Canaanite, he took a Canaanite for his son. Uh, a lot of pre-Christian Jewish writings call Tamar an alien. And then some scholars say that because of her mention in Ruth 4.12 as an example to Ruth, that that example is laid out because they're both aliens being um, grafted into the people of God. Then Rahab, we know, was a Canaanite from Jericho. Ruth was a Moabite. Bathsheba, we do not know if she was a Jew um, or not, but because she was married to Uriah the Hittite, which the text says over and over, she became alien by association. So here we have four Gentile women. On the next slide, Mary Ann quoted in her lesson on Ruth, and this is what, if I'm going to make a point about the genealogy, this is it. Um, she quoted from Galatians 3, and as I've already said, Paul wrote his letters before the Gospels. So I don't want to say that Paul was thinking of the genealogy when he wrote that, because that would be speculation. Nor do I want to say Matthew was thinking of this when he wrote his genealogy. But who did um, Paul learn his theology from? Jesus. Yeah, he, enc he encountered the risen Lord. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he was discipled by the apostles. So this is, it's not like Paul's making this up. He has learned this from Jesus. So the text says, For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Hello. So what I want to say is um, what we read here in Galatians is concretized in 
the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It's, it's, uh, it's not just some pie-in-the-sky, ethereal reality that we can't grasp. No, it's very evident in the very family of the Son of God. And what is true in his family tree, Jesus will make true on a global scale through his incarnate embodied ministry, his death and resurrection. And he wants this to be true for the church today. Um, so thanks be to God, right? <laughs> this is great news. And so I think this is a, a, the theology of what we see concretized in the genealogy of uh, Jesus as recorded by Matthew. So now the next slide. Sorry to be running. Um, I have also had two cups of coffee this morning. <laughs> Mary enters into Matthew's genealogy in a surprising way. So unlike the women who have been mentioned before her as being agents through which a man's son is born, like Boaz begat Obed by Ruth, um, the pattern of the genealogy comes to a halt with Joseph, and the language takes an unexpected detour. Joseph did not beget Jesus by Mary. Instead, Matthew says, Jacob begat or fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. In case his listeners missed it, Matthew will say twice more in the birth narrative that Mary was found pregnant by the Holy Spirit before she and Joseph had come together. So whereas the genealogy had been largely focused on which man fathered which son, now Mary takes that role as the one who gave birth to a son, Jesus. So I don't know if y'all thought of this question. It was a question I had. If Mary is the biological mother of Jesus and Joseph is not, then why trace a genealogy through Joseph? Answers. I don't know if y'all thought about that question. Because um, today, right, you would trace your Jewish heritage through your mother if you're a Jew today. Um, but at that time, you traced it through your father. And as Jesus' adoptive father, Jesus was his legitimate heir according to the Roman laws of adoption. It was very well known that under the Roman law, if you adopted a child, especially a male, then that child became your flesh and blood son. And so I have, I hope I have another quote. Is there another quote next? Oh, I did. <laughs> I don't remember. Um, this quote, again, by Alan Culpepper, I think is important. The father's act of naming his child was legally important because it was a public acknowledgement that the child was his. So this is a quotation from a source of that day. If a man said, this is my son, he may be believed. By claiming Jesus, Joseph absolved Mary of any guilt of adultery and tied Jesus to his family and its lineage. Jesus was therefore son of God through the Holy Spirit and son of David and son of Abraham through Joseph's acceptance of the child as his own. So. Now I'm concluding the Matthew genealogy part. What we see in Matthew's account of Jesus' genealogy, and I think I have this on the next slide, is that in God's freedom, so God wasn't, um, God didn't have to do this. He wasn't coerced, right? But in his absolute freedom, he has chosen a people for himself in his son. And that people whom he has chosen in love, um, in absolute freedom and love, includes Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, men and women, you and me. So that's um, good news, I hope, for all of us this morning. Okay, I'm going to take a breath before we move to Mary. Any thoughts or questions? Y'all are hanging with me. Good. Okay. Um, so we're going to pivot now. You can go to the next slide. <clears throat> And zoom in on Mary, the mother of Jesus. And I want us to do this um, by looking at Luke's 
gospel. And uh, I want, if you'll go to the next slide, you'll see that the, the angel's encounter with um, Zechariah is much longer than the one with Mary. And I couldn't fit it all on one slide. So you can go back. But um, you can just see by comparison the, the length, the difference in length. But these two accounts are meant to be read and heard in tandem so they can be compared and contrasted. So what I want to do is, y'all can read it as I and, and listen to my summary, but I'm going to summarize this uh, Zechariah's story quickly. Um, so the first story begins with an older, barren, married couple, both of the tribe of Levi, both righteous, both law keepers. Zechariah is a priest, and his wife Elizabeth is the daughter of a priest. Yet despite such a CV, their righteousness has not resulted in children. So P.S., if you think being righteous will get you what you want... Scripture <laughs> does not support that claim. Um, so far, this story sounds like maybe Sarah, right? Reminds us of the Old Testament. Then one day, it says, Luke says, Zechariah's division was on, priestly division was on duty in the temple in Jerusalem, and he was chosen by lot to enter into um, the Holy of Holies, the space where the altar is, um, to go um, before God on behalf of the people. Um, this is a once-in-a-year experience, and according to several New Testament scholars, this was once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So there were many priestly divisions. Zechariah was one of hundreds of priests. So this may have been the one and only time he had been in this position at the altar. Okay, so where am I in my notes? Yes, so he is there in this moment of worship when the people are gathered outside praying, that Zechariah meets God's messenger, Gabriel. Um, a New Testament scholar up at Wheaton, Amy Peeler, she's also an ordained Episcopal priest, uh, puts it this way. She says, if priesthood can be understood as mediation between God and humanity, Zechariah fulfills his vocation by crossing at last into the precinct where God's presence dwells. And there, one mediator is met by another. Zechariah encounters an angel. So you have Zechariah uh, as a mediator for the people, and Gabriel's there to um, bring a message to Zechariah. So Gabriel gives Zechariah great news. Um, God has heard their prayer, and he is going to answer it by giving them a son. Um, as someone who, after having our son Philip, has experienced infertility, I can only imagine how many tears were shed and prayers prayed for a child, especially for Elizabeth, who never had a child. Uh, later in the narrative, Elizabeth will refer to her barrenness as a disgrace in her community. So the angel's like, I have great news. Elizabeth's going to bear you a son. Uh, this uh, son will bring you joy and delight. It will bring rejoicing for many. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. Um, he will go in the power of Elijah, that great prophet who didn't die, but God took up to heaven. Um, and your baby will prepare the people of God for the coming of the Messiah. So in light of this wonderful news, one might expect Zechariah to rejoice and celebrate or to like fall in uh, humble gratitude. Instead, he questions the power of God. And he says this, you might see it in verse 18, how can I know this? How can I know this? Um, since I'm old, and so is my, my wife. So Zechariah wants assurance. 
He wants control of the situation via the vehicle of knowledge. I'm guilty of that. I don't know if y'all are too. He wants control of the situation by knowledge. His unbelief in God's power and word, an unbelief that was birthed in pride and based on his limited knowledge of what is possible, resulted in his loss of speech. So Gabriel doesn't answer Zechariah's question. He refuses to take the bait. And, um, you know, Zechariah, he wanted a logical explanation. I want to know this. Um, But because he wants to know this, it removes any need for faith, and he cannot hear the good news that Gabriel has brought to him. And so um, Gabriel says, you're not going to be able to talk for the next 10 months or more. Instead, you're going to get to watch and see what God is going to do. And it's after Elizabeth becomes pregnant that she is the one who speaks and proclaims that God has done this for me. Okay, so now we're to Mary. And we'll, hopefully this will help in the comparing and contrasting. So six months later, Gabriel returns again from the presence of God to earth, but this time to an unlikely person in an unlikely place. Whereas the Jews might expect, okay, so if God's going to send a messenger, yeah, he's going to send it to the temple, to the altar. That's, that's the expected place for God to send a messenger. Um, but this time, the messenger goes to Galilee, which if you're looking at a map, Jerusalem is down here in Galilee as as north. It's in uh, the kingdom of Israel, uh, what was the kingdom of Israel. So he goes to Galilee, to a city called Nazareth, to the house of a virgin named Mary. So I'm gonna quote from uh, Dr. Peeler again. She says, whereas Zechariah had approached God's realm, God's messenger has approached Mary's realm. One might imagine it this way. While Zechariah is invited to a state banquet at Buckingham Palace, the royal family themselves pay a formal visit to Mary's home address. So it's completely out of the ordinary. Um, but not only are the differences in places striking, so are the recipients of the messages. Zechariah was a priest. <laughs> Can't get a, you know, a higher vocation, so to speak, closer to God than Zechariah, right? Um, and at the time of his meeting, he was literally standing as a mediator between God and the people of Israel. Um, Mary, on the other hand, is by all outward appearances, nothing special. She was likely poor. And again, from Nazareth, remember what Nathaniel says in the Gospel of John? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Apparently not. That, you know, it's like, no, um, nothing can, nothing good can come. Um, unlike Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were married and they've been trying to get pregnant, um, have been praying for this, Mary was, um, the best way to put it is, was engaged but not married and a virgin. Um, it's not completely a perfect correlation to our system today, but that's as close as I can explain it. Um, so pregnancy at this stage would not have been on her mind or desired because it would have meant something improper. Um, whereas Gabriel comes to announce to Zechariah that, his, that their prayer has been answered, Gabriel comes to Mary with news that is not an answer to her prayer. This is not something that Mary has been praying for. So, um, in light of this, Gabriel comes to uh, Mary and and gives her greetings, calls her greatly blessed, and said, the Lord is with you. And it says this causes her to be confused and to, the Greek is to ponder, to like uh, discern what kind of greeting this is. 
And so Gabriel goes on to assure her not to give in to fear, for you have found grace with God. So, again, I think y'all are very smart, so I'm going to throw up some Greek for you. If you want to go maybe two slides? Yes. I want you to see and highlighted is this root word of grace, how often it appears in this short period. So it would literally be like saying, Grace, oh greatly graced one, <laughs> for you have found grace before God. So this encounter begins with the grace of God. And grace is not earned. It's not something that she had inherited, you know. It is purely God's grace to her. So I think on the next slide we go back to the passage. Great. Um, so after he brings this message, um, which by the way, now you can, if you didn't know, this is where Catholics get Hail Mary, full of grace um, from this, this part. So continue. We're not Catholics, we're Protestants. Um, now comes the content of God's message to, to Mary. And there are three beholds in this passage. Um, the three beholds are used to announce important messages. And Luke's language here in using behold is in continuity with the Hebrew Bible. A behold has a Hebrew Bible flavor, you know. Um, it, it, it tells of a continuation of biblical history. So the first behold from Gabriel announces the main message divided into two parts. The first part of the message is what God will do for Mary. You will conceive in womb, you will give birth to a son, you will call his name Jesus. Then Gabriel proclaims what God will do for her son, Jesus. He will be great. He will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will not have an end. Does this recall back to Matthew what we just talked about, the covenantal promises? So, um, like Zechariah, Mary responds to the angel's message with a question. And um, her question, however, is not like Zechariah's. She asks, how will this be since literally a man I have not known? This is a euphemism. Since I haven't slept with a man, how will this be? How can I get pregnant? So unlike Zechariah, who asked, how will I know this in a state of unbelief? Mary asked a question of mechanics. How will this come about since she hasn't slept with a man? And it's interesting to me, um, I don't know if this is, if I should say this, I didn't run it by my husband, but um, <clears throat> it's interesting to me that the angel has spoken of her conception and birth in futuristic terms. You will, you will. So why didn't she assume that these things would take place after her marriage had been consummated? How does she arrive at this conclusion? Has she already discerned from Gabriel's words that this won't be an ordinary conception nor an ordinary birth for this child already has a father, the son of the Most High? I don't know, but she asks this question in faith. And Gabriel doesn't sidestep the question like he does with Zechariah. Rather, he answers, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Um, therefore, the one you are to um, bear, where am I? I just lost it. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Um, on the next slide, I think I have this. God is really working through my weaknesses because <laughs> um, I'm remembering what my slides are. 
So the incarnation is a Trinitarian event. I don't want you to miss that. The Most High will overshadow her. The Holy Spirit will come upon her. And the Son of God will enter her and will take his flesh from her. If you want to go back now to the Luke text. The language used here is reminiscent of the glory of the Lord that would come down as a cloud on the Holy of Holies or on the mountain in Exodus, right? And the people tremble, and it says they couldn't see the face of God and live. So um, this is reminiscent of the glory spoken about in Exodus. And it's interesting to me, talking about that compare and contrast, whereas Zechariah was allowed into the Holy of Holies, so to speak, her womb will become the Holy of Holies, right? Um, whereas the people of God cannot look into the face of God and live in Exodus, Mary will hold and kiss the face of God in her hands. And that human face of the Son of God will resemble hers because he's taken his flesh from her. He was born a male, but took his flesh from a female. Isn't that beautiful? Again, bringing together the male and female, the one in Christ. Speaking of this overshadowing, um, an Orthodox uh, female theologian who has now gone to be with the Lord uh, wrote in a book, according to the symbolism found in Byzantine hymnography and, uh, I can never say this word, iconography, ah, the Virgin is often symbolically represented as the burning bush that burned with the divine fire but was not consumed. Isn't that interesting? Um, so, going on, um, Mary didn't ask for a sign from the angel, like Zechariah did, but Gabriel gave her one. So here's the second behold. Behold, your relative Elizabeth has conceived a son in her, own, her old age. So Mary would have known Elizabeth's story, would have known that she was childless and past childbearing age. And if Elizabeth is pregnant, then this is a sign, a miracle, right? And this is a lesser to a greater argument. If Elizabeth, who was barren and old, is pregnant, how much more so will God bring to pass what he is promising to you? Gabriel's point is nothing is impossible with God. And to, to uh, mention the Greek again, it's, it's difficult syntax, but it literally says nothing is impossible for God's word. So the last word that the angel says is word. Nothing is impossible for God's word. Um, so whereas Zechariah is rendered mute, Gabriel, this is interesting to me, he waits for Mary to speak. And she is afforded the last word. Before we look at what she says, um, I want to mention several, uh, and this isn't original with me, uh, several scholars say this, uh, point this out, but that through this dialogue, Luke wants us to know that Jesus' birth was not brought about by coercion, but consent. God wasn't on the lookout for a womb and said, oh yeah, she'll do. Um, again, to quote Elizabeth, he said, she said, Mary is not a passive instrument. She wasn't simply the womb through which the word passed in taking flesh. God did not come upon Mary by force like a Greek pagan god. He wasn't like Zeus who raped uh, Leda. Is that how you say it? Leda? Thank you. Um, God wasn't like King David, who Rita taught, taught about last week, who used his power to have sex, or some might say rape, Bathsheba. God wasn't like that. Rather, God sent his messenger to Mary to tell her about his plan 
and what will take place if she agrees to it. It's an invitation with a future promise. Will she take God's word by faith? God invited Mary to participate with him in bringing about the kingdom of God on earth. And for Mary to say yes to God, we should just pause and think that this was not an easy yes or a, um, a safe yes. As wonderful as this news was that she would bear the Son of God, imagine how scary to think in light of Exodus about the, about the Holy One, the Mighty One, overshadowing you. You know, that's kind of terrifying. Um, plus, there is a risk of divorce, of shame, and of her health. You know, pregnancy until the advent of modern medicine might have been a death sentence for, it was a death sentence for women and babies, right? There are many women who did not survive pregnancy. And even though Gabriel speaks of the promised birth of his son, he makes no promise that she will live long enough after childbirth to rear him. So, uh, I also think it's important to remember that Mary in Luke's gospel is thoughtful and discerning. She ponders the greeting. Later, Luke says that she was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. So I think the picture we get of Mary is one who's thoughtful, discerning, uh, considering what this is going to cost her. And then it's out of that that she responds. So just as Gabriel was sent by God to deliver a message to Mary, Gabriel waits to see what message Mary has to, de to deliver to God. And this is the third behold and she's the one that says, who says it. She says, Behold, I'm a slave of the Lord. Let it happen to me according to your word. So remember, Gabriel ended with, Nothing is impossible with God's word. She ends with your word, this word, God's word. It's as if she's saying, According to this word of God's, for which there is no impossibility. And friends, you know, I've, I can't get past that. Um, what was true of Elizabeth for Elizabeth, what was true for Mary, is true for all of us. This impossibility, there's nothing impossible for God's word. Um, and I think about Jesus' ministry, you know, he spoke and the waves listened and obeyed. Um, he spoke and the dead raised, were raised from their tombs. And um, just as that is tr was true then, it's so true for us today. Um, you've, you've committed sin. There's nothing that God cannot forgive. Um, you're scared of death. God's going to raise you from the dead. <laughs> so all the promises of God um, are fulfilled in Christ. They get a yes and an amen. And we see that right here with Elizabeth and Mary. So... Um, I have about five more minutes, if you'll hang with me. When Mary visited Elizabeth, Elizabeth blessed Mary for believing what the Lord had said to her. And as my husband said, he, she was like making a jab at Zechariah, her husband, who did not believe um, what was spoken to him. And later, a woman in Jesus' ministry will raise her voice out in a crowd and say, Blessed is the womb that bore you and uh, the one who nursed you. And remember what Jesus said? Blessed are those who hear my word and keep it. Right. So I, I don't think he's trying to minimize the role his mother played. I think he's trying to refocus the importance of his mom's role, that she believed 
God's word and kept it. And when we keep God's word, when we believe God's word, we're right there with Mary. We're right there um, in step with Mary. Um, So as a result of being filled with the Holy Spirit, Mary prophesies and she experiences her own kind of Pentecost. Um, She sings a song. And this song is the first theological interpretation of the Incarnation. She exegetes the meaning of Gabriel's words and puts them in a song. And we're invited to sing this song, too, with Mary. Um, I don't know that I included this on the slide. Nope. But that's probably, well, I'll come back to that. Um, So quickly about her song. Her song is scriptural. Um, There's a lot of themes in the Old Testament that we read in um, her song. She knew her Bible. Um, Two, what God has done for her is a sign what God will do for his people. So what Elizabeth was to Mary, Mary is to us. Mary is a sign that what God has done for Mary, he will do for us. Not in the same way. We're not going to give birth to um, the Son of God in the way that Mary did. But actually, it is because of what Jesus Christ is. It's, let me put it to you this way. Because um, Jesus took his flesh from a woman, he was able then to, um, through his life, start healing humanity. And that flesh died. And then it was raised. And now we are given birth by God, right? Uh, there are several texts in the, um, in the New Testament that speaks to God giving birth to us um, by the Holy Spirit. Her song sings of salvation that is both spiritual and physical, concrete um, realities. Um, and Mary sings of God's faithfulness through the generations, um, thereby pointing us back to Matthew's genealogy. So she sings about God's faithfulness to the generations. And I can't help but go right back to what um, we read in Matthew about God's faithfulness to the generations. Okay, so in conclusion, what I want to say is Mary's story represents what God does for all of us in Jesus Christ. God descends to us in grace and extends his grace to us. God's grace meets us in the person of Jesus Christ. And we're invited to respond in faith and accept this promised grace. If we accept God's grace, namely who Jesus Christ, then we are filled with the Holy Spirit and become co-participants in his kingdom work. And we, too, become temples of the living God. And there's a lot of New Testament texts to refer you to. Um, When we say our creeds, we always mention Mary, right? And I think Mary can serve as a sign for many things. Most importantly, that God actually became a human, (laughs) that he took his flesh from this woman. But she also serves as a sign of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to believe. And if you think about it, this is the progression of our liturgy. When the celebrant proclaims the gospel before the Eucharist, he um, proclaims what God, he or she proclaims what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And as a result of hearing the gospel, we pray with the same attitude as Mary. And this is the prayer that I want us to end on. So this is not Mary's word, but I think these words in our liturgy capture the attitude of Mary. Okay, so we'll conclude with this prayer. And here we offer and present unto thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls and bodies, to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice unto thee, humbly beseeching thee that we and all others who shall be partakers of this holy communion may worthily receive the most precious body and blood of thy Son, Jesus Christ, be filled with thy grace and heavenly benediction, and made one body with him, that he may dwell in us and we in him. Amen. 
You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.